If you'd join me in reading the word this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray together. Father, as we were singing those last two songs, I just saw a vision of you pouring mercy upon us as your people. I saw like a trickle of rain turn slowly but surely into a deluge, a flood, so that we were completely soaked completely soaked in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And how I pray that that reality would in fact descend upon us this morning. We have some challenging and difficult things to talk about in the next several weeks. And Lord, how I pray that we would do so from the basis of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. We're caught, Lord. We are sinners. We are guilty before you, and there's no way we can explain our way, talk our way, argue our way, hope our way out of it. We're caught, plain and simple. And yet Jesus Christ, the righteous, emptied himself and gave himself up on a cross for us, that our sins might be covered and forgotten, and that we might be showered with mercy, so that now we seek to overcome our sin from a place of grace and not from a place of condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. So Lord, I, I do pray that you would let conviction reign in our hearts, that we who have been saved from death would not return to it again. We who have been freed from sin would not seek to be enslaved to it again. But I pray that all condemnation would be removed from us in Christ. And I pray for the mercy of God to shower upon us this morning, forgiving our sins and helping us to feel that our sins are forgiven. Helping us to experience the freedom of a slave that's been set free. And helping us to know the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ that changes us so that we no longer have to live as though we were still slaves to things we've been freed from. Oh God, make these things live among us this morning, I pray. 
And again, I pray that that picture of a deluge of mercy coming down upon glory of Christ Baptist Church, how I pray that it would be a living reality for us this morning. May the mercy of God forgive sins and transform lives today for the glory of your great name. And now, Lord, may all of the words that come out of my mouth and all of the secret meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our Savior, our Redeemer and our friend, our Father. And it is in your great and gracious name that we pray all these things. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul begins a train of thought that's designed, I think, to help us become more like the Savior who saved us and less and less and less like the world out of which the Savior saved us. Paul in verse 17 there very matter-of-factly says, Now this I say to you and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And rather, he says, we have to put off the old self. We have to forsake our old way of being and instead be renewed in the spirit of our minds, in the way we think, in the way we imagine, in the way that we act. And we have to put on the new self, he says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then in verses 25 to 32, Paul goes on to give us several specific examples of what he means. This is not all that he means, they're just examples of what he means. And specifically, he talks about lying and putting off lying and putting on truth-telling. He talks about putting off the inappropriate use of anger and putting on the stewardship of our anger. He talks about putting off stealing and putting on instead hard and honest labor and generosity. And by the way, I was speaking with a brother this week about Christians in the marketplace, and he was telling me that he had just been to a meeting where they talked about the fact that so many Christians out there in the marketplace are just as deceitful and conniving in their business practices as those who are not believers. And i got to tell you, when I heard that, it just broke my heart all the way to the core. We ought to be leading in the business world, showing what it's like to live ethical lives before the Lord and before each other. We ought to be paragons, examples of what it looks like to live honest and ethical lives. But if the statistics are true, it seems that Christians are just following in the course of this world, acting as though Jesus Christ has made no difference in their lives at all. I remember once there was a guy I was trying to share Christ with, and he said to me, I might think about Christ when you tell so-and-so who's in your church to start treating people like a Christian. And I asked him what he meant. And bottom line, this guy was in the construction business and he was just ripping people off left and right and then going to church on Sunday like there was nothing wrong with what he was doing. And I hope and pray with all my heart that we will not be a people like that at glory of Christ. I hope and pray with all of my heart that we will trust in Jesus and not act like the world out there in the business world. That we would not use language like this. Like, well, that's just the way the world is. And if you're going to survive in my industry, you have to do what this industry does. There's a Hebrew word about that. Hogwash. Hogwash. That is not true. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ lives in you. And God Almighty is your Father. And you don't need to live the way the world lives in order to get what you need in this world. And obviously we have needs, but we don't have to live like them to get what we want. God Almighty is on your side. 
so live like it. Heed the warning of the Apostle Paul and put off stealing no matter what it costs you. So what if you lose your business? You'll gain your life. You'll gain your life. So put off stealing. Put on hard work. Put on honest work. And put on generosity. Live to give. Don't live to get is what I think Paul is trying to say to us. Next, Paul says, we ought to put off corrupt speech. And he mentions several things. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Put it all away. And instead, put on upbuilding, gracious speech that's kind and tender-hearted and forgiving, just as God in Christ has been toward us. In other words, as Paul goes on to say in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, we ought to seek to be imitators of God rather than imitators of the world as beloved children. As children who've been chosen by God and been predestined for adoption by God and redeemed by God, forgiven by God, indwelt by God, helped by God. Out of deep and growing affection for God and what He's done for us, we ought to seek to be like Him. We ought to seek to be imitators of Him and use our speech to upbuild others. We ought to strive to be like Jesus Christ and lay our lives down for the good of other people rather than using other people for our own good. And that's really the difference between the flesh and the Spirit, isn't it? In the flesh, we use other people for our good, even if we're subtle and sophisticated about it, that's what we're doing. But in the Spirit, we serve other people for their good and for the glory of God. That's what Jesus did, and Paul is saying, children of God, beloved, be like your Father. There's more joy than you can imagine for you in being like your Father. Now, in chapter 5, verses 3 to 14, Paul addresses another manner in which we ought to put off the old self and put on the new self. Namely, he says that we ought to put off all immoral and impure and covetous speech and action, and instead we ought to fit ourselves with thanksgiving, which is befitting of the upright. So what I'd like to do this morning is just simply systematically work our way through verses 3 through 4, dealing with one piece at a time. And then in the end, I want to come back and give some encouragement to those of you who are struggling with the issues that we're going to be talking about today. And just to give you a small taste of what I want to encourage you with, I just want to tell you there's hope in Jesus Christ for you. I, it would surprise me if there's one person in this room who has not or is not even presently failing with the things we're going to talk about today. And so let me just strike the devil before he can get to you. There's hope for you in Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ. There's change available for you in Jesus Christ. The mercy that I saw as we were singing, pouring down on the people of God. Friends, that's a reality. Whether you see it or not, the mercy of God is pouring upon you where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So believe. And if you struggle, hope, hope, hope in Jesus Christ. Please look with me at uh, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But... Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The term sexual immorality in verse 3 
is, in my view, a catch-all phrase that refers to all kinds of aberrant and immoral and uh, in forbidden behavior. There are some who argue that it refers only to sexual immorality that takes place outside the bonds of marriage because there is another word in the Greek language that refers to sexual immorality that takes place within the bonds of marriage, much like our word adultery. You would not use the word adultery, would you, about a person who's sexually immoral but not married. That word is reserved for those who are married. And there's a a word like that in Greek. And so some people say this word refers more to people who are not married and are indulging in sexual immorality. The, The only problem with that is sometimes this word gets used in a way that it applies to married people. So in my view, it's a catch-all term that addresses all kinds of sexual immorality. But, just in case, any of us would be tempted to define this term in a narrow way and thereby excuse our behavior or justify ourselves, Paul follows it up with this term also. All impurity. All impurity. That word totally closes the door on any hemming and hawing we could do about the exact meaning of sexual immorality. just totally closes the door. However narrowly you define the first term, the second term catches every kind of immoral, indecent, and, and forbidden behavior. There's simply no way that we can justify ourselves before God, excuse ourselves before God, in light of a term like all impurity. We're just caught. It's just that simple. We've been caught in a trap. There's no escape. There's no way out of this. So with that in mind, I want to name a few impurities here so that we're being specific and so that the light of the Word of God can shine into the darkness of our hearts and can convict us and transform us. And if you're a parent, don't worry, I'm going to be very careful here. Entering or entertaining immoral thoughts about being with a person that other than our spouse, either physically or just relationally being with them, that's impure and it's sin. Looking at still images or moving images of other people who are, which are either subtly sensual or clearly sensual or graphically sensual, if you get my meaning, that's impure and it's completely wrong and it's sin. Looking at an actual person and allowing our mind to go in places that they ought not to go, that's impure and it's sin. Reading books that are rife with immorality and with adultery and allowing our minds to enter into the fantasies of those who are being described in the book, that's impure. And it's wrong and it's sin. Speaking to another person in a flirtatious or a suggestive manner, even if we do it subtly and sophisticatedly, even if we're maybe just thinking it in our mind but it doesn't quite come out of our mouths, that whole impulse to be just get near the line but not quite step over it, that's sin. That's impurity. Spending private time with a person of the opposite sex who is not our spouse is impure. And you're just asking for it. There probably are some of you who in your business practice make a practice of meeting for lunch or dinner or whatever with a person of the opposite sex to do business. I would not do that. I would rather lose business than do that. Because even if your intentions are not impure when you go to that meeting, friend, you are just opening yourself up to all kinds of possibilities. The way I think about it is if I never spend time with a woman other than my spouse 
Adultery can never happen because I'm just never in the place to do it. Billy Graham has a policy. He won't even ride in an elevator with a woman alone. He won't do it. He will not be caught with a person of the opposite sex alone because even if your heart is not impure going in, how do you know the other person's heart? How do you know that the devil won't tempt you? So don't tempt fates and don't do it. In my view, it's impure. You should rather lose business and just take it on the chin. Let people make fun of you. Who cares? Who cares? Would you rather be made fun of and be with Jesus Christ or be acceptable to the world and sin against your Lord? Those are your choices. Those are your choices. So don't let yourself be in a place where you could be impure. And then there's the whole host of impurities that are possible when a person actually steps over the line and stops just thinking about these things and actually starts engaging in them. And I don't feel any need at all to name those. You can figure that out for yourself. But there are a whole host of them out there. Every kind of immoral activity is implicated in these terms, sexual immorality and all impurity. We are simply left without excuse before God and without a way to justify ourselves before Him. And so it is that Paul says, we must put these things away. He's basically saying, just stop trying to make excuses. Stop trying to justify yourself by walking so close to the line. Just stop it. Turn around, repent, and put these things away. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Think differently. Put on the new self. Created after the likeness of your Father in true righteousness and holiness. And delight yourselves in the things that God would have you delight in. Not in the things that the world or the flesh would have you delight in. In other words, be an imitator of God and not an imitator of the world. Now interestingly, Paul joins another term to these two terms here in this verse. And he does it again in verse 5. Namely, covetousness. Which at first blush may seem to you... Like, what, what's that doing there? What does sexual immorality and covetousness have to do with each other? The word covetousness simply means to desire more money and things than you really need. I need more money and more things. You probably are there with me. But I want to use them for the glory of God. I don't need them as an end in themselves. Covetousness is when I want them as an end in themselves. The definition is no more complicated than that. But please look with me at verse 5. And you'll see a little twist that Paul puts on the word that helps explain why he links it with sexual immorality. Paul writes, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The one who is covetous, who lusts after money and things, is an idolater. In other words, the one who is covetous is worshiping a false god. And herein lies the secret to why Paul links sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness. It's idolatry. That's the key. Let me show you what I mean. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 16, it's one example of many, probably hundreds of times, that the Bible refers to... Um, to idolatry as sexual immorality or adultery or whoredom. So let me just read for you a few verses out of Ezekiel 16. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of the street and making your lofty place in every square, 
Yet you were not like the prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. What's he talking about? He's talking about Israel who's worshiping other gods. That's what he's talking about. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. And you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. In other words, you just gave yourself away to other gods like it was no big deal. And then from the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God. The reason that the Bible so often refers to idolatry or false worship as adultery is because that's exactly what it is. If you are a Christian, then you are in a covenant relationship with God that is infinitely more serious than any covenant relationship that you are also in. And when you turn your heart from Him toward other gods, you commit spiritual Adultery. You cheat on God who is your Father. And as Aaron said in his prayer this morning, that's treason. That's treason. One of the things that often happens when a person commits spiritual adultery against God is they either begin to or they continue to engage in sexual immorality. In fact, there are a whole host of people out in the world who reject God and reject the idea of God because they want to indulge their flesh without being bothered by the idea, by the fact that they will answer to God for their lives. They will give an account for their lives. So it's so much easier to do all that you want to do if you just dismiss God and the reality of accounting for your life before Him. And many people are doing that. The heart of immorality and impurity is idolatry. And the heart of covetousness is also idolatry because covetousness is a turning away from God and instead pursuing the power and the prestige and the pleasures of this world. Covetousness is a turning away from trusting in God and trusting instead in the resources of this world, like big salaries, like stock options, like savings accounts, like 401ks. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things in themselves are evil. But what I am saying is trusting in them is tantamount to idolatry. Because you don't trust that God, your Father, can meet your needs. If you're trusting in your retirement account, you might be committing idolatry. Who are you trusting in? I know a a, a Christian leader, Bill Bright was his name. He's the founder of Campus Crusade. And I heard him tell a story once that God led he and his wife to give their entire retirement account that they had saved up for 30, 40 years. God just made it so clear to them, Bill, give this money to that ministry over there. It left him without a way to care for himself in his old age. And he did it. And I don't remember exactly how the story went, but just after he gave that money, all of a sudden a flood of money came into his life. I don't know if it was a relative who died or something like that. I don't know what it was. But the Lord took care of him all the way to the day of his death. And my only point is this. I'm not telling you to go home and divest yourselves of your retirement accounts. I'm telling you, trust in Jesus and not in your retirement accounts. And if he tells you to give it, give it. Give it. 
Trust in Him, because otherwise it's idolatry. It's trusting in another God. Now, what I'm about to say is not only true of America, but I do think it's especially true of America. In our culture, we, generally speaking, don't fashion idols of wood and silver and gold and then bow down to them and worship them like some of the cultures in the Bible did. But I do think we have twin gods in this culture. And I think that their names are sexual immorality and greed. I think this culture totally feeds off of sexual immorality and greed. Our economy thrives off of selling sexual immorality and greed. Everywhere you go, these things are being sold. Our means of communication, like television, radio, internet, magazines, you name it, are shot through with sexual immorality and greed. In fact, if you don't put those things in there, they won't sell. People won't pay attention to you. You can't go anywhere without seeing shrines in this culture to our twin gods, sexual immorality and greed. And every day, people in our culture are bowing down to them. They are really the twin pillars of our society. And quite frankly, I find it difficult to imagine an America without them because they're so deeply ingrained in our culture and our economy and they have been so long with us. As I said, the thing that links sexual immorality and covetousness is idolatry. And so when a person or a culture like ours struggles with any of or all of these things, our main problem is a worship problem. Our main problem is an idolatry problem. Sex is not America's problem. Idolatry is. The the greed of our form of capitalism is not the problem. Idolatry is. Long before we turned our hearts toward these things, we turned our hearts away from the living God and toward them. And so, the solution to the problem in the long term is not therapy, it's repentance. The solution to a problem of idolatry is to repent from your sin, confess it, turn from a false god which promised false things and fleeting pleasures, and turn back to the true God who makes true promises. And one of those promises is everlasting, ever-increasing pleasure. So again, our problem is not that we need therapy, we need repentance in this culture, friends. We need widespread revival in America. Did you know that America is one of the most unreached countries in in the world? If you just look at the number of people who are not following Christ, there are more non-Christ followers in America than almost all the countries in the world. How did that happen? We were once a, a Christian country, so to speak. How did that happen? Here's how it happened. We turned from the true God to false idols, mainly sex and greed. And now we need to heed a passage like Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. The only hope, I think, for our land is widespread repentance. Otherwise, believe me, I don't believe in the future of America. We're going to be just like Rome. We're going to slowly but surely crumble and fall one day. God will cause us to fall if we don't turn from our idols to Him. In fact, I heard John MacArthur preach a sermon last year that was an amazing sermon to me. And he was arguing that God has already turned His face on the United States. And it was a, a very compelling sermon. God, how I pray that that's not true. 
In addition to the three things we've mentioned so far, Paul goes on to add three more things. And they all have to do with our manner of speech. You can see these in verse 4. First, Paul mentions filthiness, which the word literally means ugliness or deformity. And it almost always has sexual overtones to it. So when you hear that word filthiness, what ought to come to your mind is ugly, deformed speech that almost always has sexual overtones to it. In other words, our speech was designed to be beautiful and God-glorifying, but when we speak in those kinds of ways, it's deformed. It comes out like a child who is deformed. Second, Paul mentions foolish talk, which is speech that comes out of the mouth without forethought or wisdom. In other words, it's just, it's just spontaneous, thoughtless speech that's useless, that is idle, and that is foolish. It's the opposite of wise, thoughtful, useful speech. And finally, he mentions crude joking. Interestingly, this word, at the root of it, it means to be witty. It means to be the kind of person who can quickly have insight into something and, and make a joke out of it in a witty kind of way. And also at the root of the word is the idea of vulgarity. So what Paul's talking about with crude joking is a witty but vulgar person. And he's saying, put that away from you. Put it away from you, all of it. And in all of this, what I think Paul is trying to say to us is something like this. As people who have come to know the unsearchable riches of God in Christ, or as he said in verse 1, as beloved children of God, we simply must put away the gods of this world in thought, in our manner of speech, and in our behavior, and instead we must turn with all of our hearts to the living God who saved us from our sin and seek to be imitators of Him. If God has indeed saved us, then we ought to stop being like the world and we ought to start being like the God who saved us from our sins. Paul is so serious about this that he says in verses 3 and then 12, he says that not only should we not do these things, we shouldn't even name these things. These things should not even be found on our lips, much less in our minds or in our actions. In verse 12 he says that even to speak of this stuff is shameful. It's shameful even to mention it in passing, even to joke about it, even to subtly tell a story. It's shameful, and we should put it away from ourselves as far away as we possibly can. The only things, friends, that is fitting among saints, among those who have been set apart by God for Himself, is to put these things as far away from ourselves as we possibly can. Immoral, covetous speech and behavior in the life of one who is beloved of God is like putting a tuxedo on a donkey. It just doesn't make sense. It's not fitting. You got that picture in your mind? A donkey with a tuxedo, he's all dressed up, it just doesn't fit. And that's the way immoral speech looks on the lips of a believer. It just doesn't fit. It's weird. It's wrong. It does not rightly reflect the glory of God that has changed our lives and saved our lives, if indeed He has saved our lives. The Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so for those of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ, our Hearts ought to be filled with thanksgiving and praise for Him. And our mouths ought to overflow with the same. And we ought just to forsake every form of speech that denigrates Him or that fails to exalt Him in any way, shape, or form. 
The issue, friends, is not simply one of behavior modification. I've been saying this for weeks and weeks and weeks because I really want us to get this. It's not as though Paul is saying to us, listen, you're a bad lot of people and here's the right thing to do and you just need to do it. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It's just right, so just do it. That is not the thing that Paul is trying to communicate to us. The issue is that Jesus Christ, by His grace, has transformed us from being enemies of God, as we read in James 4.4, into being beloved children of God, as we see in Ephesians 5.1. And out of gratefulness for our Father and what He's done for us, we ought to speak in a way that's glorifying to Him and upbuilding to other people. And we ought just to forsake everything that is different from that. This is why Paul says at the end of verse 4, look, is the only alternative that he gives. He says, instead, there should be thanksgiving. None of the other things that he's mentioned befit the children of God. But thanksgiving perfectly befits the children of God. Thanksgiving is perfectly befitting of those who have been forgiven by God and who are being transformed by God, and who are living in the hope of eternal and perfect and intimate communion with God. In Christ, God the Almighty has become our Father. And that fact alone should fill our hearts with thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving ought to flow out in the form of praise. This is why... David wrote what he did in Psalm 33. And would you please turn there with me? I want to read this whole psalm together because it's just so beautiful. And it so expresses the idea to us. You, you may remember from one of Jesus' statements to a person who was caught in sin. He said to them, he actually said to people who were giving him a hard time for forgiving this person, he said, listen, the one who is forgiven much does what? They love much. They love much. The one who has been forgiven much, thanks much, and praises much. So, please hear me. The more you see the depth of your sin, and the more you feel the mercy of God poured on you because of your sin, the more thanksgiving will rise up in your heart, and the more it will be on your lips. Now let's look at what David said in Psalm 33, verse 1. He said, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Praise and thanksgiving on the lips of those who have come to know God in Christ is just right. It just fits them. It's a beautiful thing. It's not like a tuxedo on a donkey. It's like an ornate, handcrafted wedding dress on the body of a bride. It's a beautiful thing. And it belongs there. It belongs there. The rest of the psalm tells us why. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That's a great word for people from Minnesota. Loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let the earth, all the earth, fear the Lord. 
Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever in the plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our salvation. For our heart is glad in Him because we trusted in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. Beloved, people who think like that and feel like that and are saturated in truths like that, they take their minds and their mouths and their actions out of the gutter and they outfit themselves with praise and thanksgiving. If you and I hoped in God the way David really did hope in God, praise would always be on our lips. The first verse of Psalm 34, he said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my mouth. Why? Because praise befits the righteous. People who look to God and behold Him and admire Him and adore Him. Praise befits them. It just makes sense. You can't see something of the beauty of God without praise rising up from with your heart and coming out of your mouth. It doesn't make sense for anything else to happen. And oh, how I pray that we will get this point to the depths of our hearts today. That God is not just trying to modify our speech and our behavior from the outside, but friends, He's trying to turn our hearts toward Him in the way that David's heart was turned toward Him. If you would hope in Him and trust in Him and take your joy in Him, as David said at the end of Psalm 33, I'm glad where? I'm glad in God. If you would do that, then praise would be on your mouth. And oh, you would look so beautiful to your Father. Your Father would look on you like a beautiful bride, all decked out for the wedding. That's what it looks like on you. Anything else is inappropriate for you, and it's inappropriate for me. If we will make a life of beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ, then praise will automatically rise up from within us, and the rest of the things God has commanded us will make so much sense to us. This is why Jesus, when He was asked, you remember in Mark 12, Someone came and asked him, what is the greatest commandment in all the Bible? I believe in the Old Testament there's somewhere around 633 commandments. So the man asked, which one is the most important? And you remember how he answered. It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's not just about keeping rules, friends. 
It's about loving the Father who saved you. And if you will love Him, then the rest of His commandments will just make sense to you. They will make sense to you. And for the ones that don't make sense, you'll trust your Father. There are times when I read something in the Bible and say, I don't get that. I just don't get that. But I trust you, Father. And I'm going to do it anyways. And after obedience, here comes the joy. That's the picture God is trying to paint for us today. So, let's listen to Paul. Let's heed the words of God in Ephesians 5, 3, and 4. Put off all sexual immorality, all impurity, all covetousness, all filthiness, all foolish talk, all crude joking, and let us put on the praise that flows out of a heart that beholds God, because praise befits the upright. I hope you bring this picture in your mind with you when you leave church today. I want you to see a bride all decked out, beautiful and ornate. That's how Jesus Christ sees the church. And praise is like the dressing on that bride. Keep that in your mind. Live like that. When you praise God and thank God continually, blessing Him at all times, you look amazingly attractive to God. Amazingly beautiful to Him. I'm going to close very quickly this morning by speaking a word of hope to those of you who have failed in this area, or perhaps even right now. Perhaps this week you failed for the 25,000th time in one of these areas, and you're just feeling really under conviction right now. I want to speak a word to you, and my word is very, very simple. Don't give up the fight, because there's hope for you. In Christ, there is hope for your forgiveness. I don't care what you have done this week. If you're in Christ... I don't care what you've set your eyes to this week. I don't care what action you've taken. If you are truly in Christ, there's hope for your forgiveness, friend. The Bible says at the end of Romans chapter 5 that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's not a license for us to go sin at all. But it's a truth that's meant to overwhelm us with mercy when we do sin. When we sin, the grace of God is there to cover 10,000 times every single sin that we sin. So please, don't give up. One of the problems with us believers is we get in a battle and Satan knocks us on the ground and we just stay there. Don't do it. In Christ, get up. Fight the good fight. Have hope. Because Jesus Christ will forgive you if you'll just humble yourself before Him. And number two, In Christ, there's more than hope of forgiveness. There's hope of change, of permanent change. The grace of Jesus Christ was not only meant to forgive sin, but to transform the sinner. That's what it's supposed to do. And I'll tell you, friends, I know so many stories. Several are coming to my mind right now. Especially of men who have struggled with these issues. And I've seen the power of Jesus Christ change them. And they're free today. I know men who are addicted to sexual things and they're free today by the power of Jesus Christ. So don't give up. Don't give up. No matter what you do, don't give up. Don't stop believing in the power and the grace of Jesus Christ that can change you. Don't give up. Rise up another day and fight the good fight this day for the glory of your Father and the good of your own soul. And listen, if you're in a place right now where you're just feeling like you can't fight this fight alone, you've fallen so many times and you've kept this hidden from people around you, and you just know you're never going to come through this alone, then please come and talk to me. Please do this. God has given you the body of Christ to help you overcome. Did you ever stop to think that we weren't meant to overcome our sins alone? We're meant to overcome our sins together, friends. I am not going to be surprised to hear that you're a sinner. 
No matter what you've done, I have walked through some very dark things with people. And I've seen God overcome all kinds of sins. And He can do it in your life. No one's going to look down on you and think less of you because you're a sinner. So please, don't let the devil trap you anymore. Come and expose your sin and let's lock arms together. Let's fight together. Let's fight this good fight and overcome our flesh. Overcome the world and overcome the devil for the glory of God and the good of our souls. Amen? John says in 1 John chapter 5, go look it up. He says, anyone who is of Christ overcomes the world. There's power to do it, but we're not meant to do it alone. So please, 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 if you just know you're not going to be able to overcome this on your own, come forward and let me talk with you and we'll walk together and we'll see the victory of Jesus Christ with our own eyes. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you once more for your great mercy that is in fact showering upon us right this moment. And I want to ask you, Lord, to shine the light of the Word of God into every impure and immoral corner of our hearts. And I want to ask you to change us, Father. We don't know how to do it on our own. But with God on our side, we can do anything. And so please, mighty conqueror, please come and rise up and shine the light of the glory of your face into our souls and change us, Lord, change us. Give us the courage to confess our sins to one another. Give us the courage to lock arms with one another and fight with one another. Give us the tenacity that when we're knocked down, when we lose a battle, we won't quit the war. But help us, Lord. Give us power. Speak the Word even now and cause us to rise up and take the sword of the Word of God and get down on our knees in prayer and fight and fight and fight the good fight of the faith. And how I pray, Lord, that as we do, You would free us from sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness and filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking and everything else that goes with it. And how I pray that You would outfit us, befit us with praise and thanksgiving, which belongs on us, Lord. Oh, please come and help us with these things, Father. The stakes are so high. And our need is so great. So please come and help us now. In the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ, I pray all these things. Amen.